0: Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: The Whistleblowers is back for the season by Labbrooks. We
0: call whistle, if this is true. We love to do the things that we're not supposed to do. We don't need robbing, stealing. Or
1: this is indeed the Whistleblowers, and my name's Stuart Wright. We are back by Labbrooks for the exclusive specials. Go to bet.thewistleblowers.net. Now you join me for what is a bonus episode of Whistleblowers this week, as opposed to the single episode that uh, me or Martin Gritton usually uh, put out there on the iTunes etc. Um, this one was uh, was always meant to be just uh, a little bit extra to add to what is recorded in the studio, but uh, I ended up having three quite lengthy conversations. Um, Two of them were around the big game of the weekend, Manchester United 2, Liverpool 1. So whistleblowers got to speak to Stephen Armstrong of United We Stand. And we had a great chat about um, his theories and view that uh, Mourinho is doing a great job, despite how the media might not be celebrating any of his achievements thus far this season with Man United. Uh, we also touch upon um, the, uh, the survival of their their physical uh, print magazine, United We Stand, which uh, in this day and age of websites and podcasts is a, uh, is a happy sight to behold. We also spoke to um, Anfield Raps' Neil Atkinson uh, to hear what the, uh, the losers in that game, Liverpool, might have thought of the game. And separating these two heavyweights of the football fan media world is um, our very own Mark Webster, who uh, gave us his view on the troubles and tribulations of West Ham at the London Stadium, the pitch invasions, the, the staring up at the director's box, the fight for relegation that is West Ham United. Welcome, Steve Strong from United we stand to the whistleblowers. How are you?
2: Afternoon, I'm good, mate. You? Oh, not true, but
1: I'm not too bad. I'm sure it would have been a would have been a bit better with a different result with uh, Man United versus Liverpool, but uh, such is life.
2: Well, luckily it was a game that didn't really matter, so uh, you can get over it pretty quickly. In the same way, I would have done if it had been your
1: way out. <laughs> well, look, it was it was a case. I guess going into it, it was what the most miserly defence at home against the highest scorers away from home. Some had to give, and it was Liverpool. So, what do you think United did right?
2: Um, I think United clearly did their own work. Um, United, particularly, credit was absolutely wonderful. Got to go to the manager um, as the whole season, where United are concerned. You know, I think whenever a team overperforms, um, you've got a point at the manager and say, "Top job." And you know, Jose Mourinho is an is an easy person to beat up in, in the media. I think he's, you know, there's a lot of lazy comments about style of play and defensive this, defensive that. But ultimately, the man's a master tact- tactician. Um, he's picked United up from. Pretty dismal place when he found it, and he's um, moving to come forward almost um, week on week. So um, he deserves huge, huge, huge amount of credit for the job he's doing at United. Um, I think he knew for well what was coming um, from Liverpool, and uh, I think he just had a better plan than than Klopp. And I think he he showed there and then what weaknesses Klopp has as a manager. You know, no doubt about it. You know, when he's this attacking, gunslinging approach. Um, that, uh, that Liverpool have it's great to watch um, but ultimately if it doesn't take you to places where you get silver things to lift into the sky at the end of it then you know it's almost pointless so you know people will always on about how entertaining this that and the this is ultimately but it soon to always try that you know when there's no end products and you know I, I came from an era where you know Liverpool fans at the minute sound almost as As sort of pathetic as Manchester United fans like me did in the 80s, where we used to get off on the fact that we played great football, we were attacking, we had wingers, um, and yet Liverpool fans used to just laugh at us by winning the league every year and and European Cup. So it's a bit of a low reversal on that front. But, um, you know, in terms of what he did well, you know, he had a plan, um, he managed to snuff out, you know, the three brilliant attackers, um, particularly Salah, who I think is player of the year, um, and I even put him ahead of De Bruyne on that really? point. I think he's done oh absolutely 100% he's been exceptional um, you know I think ultimately De Bruyne is he's surrounded by great players um, I think really great players lift. because I don't think Liverpool's a particularly great side I just mm. think what you've got there. this is um, one player in particular there who's raising the standard of all of those around it. and um, you know I think you look at how many players since Salah's come to Liverpool have gone up and watched for me being the classic one um, you know, I think he's. I think he deserves a huge, huge amount of credit for that. But Mourinho um, know, did a job on him. You know, we got Ashley Young to do a large job. I was going to say Ashley Young is. Is that
1: Ashley Young's a converted fullback who was bought for his attacking talent, and yet he was like the most battle-scarred fullback putting someone in his pocket, wasn't he?
2: Yeah, it was, and and player player. I think don't forget that. I think what you're dealing with, you, for what you might think about, eight, there's nothing more valuable on a football pitch than than an experienced mind. And you know, I, I remember the, the classic one for me that springs to mind there was Teddy Sheringham when he came to United. He was slow on the pitch, but by God did he have a quick mind and one of the most yeah. intelligent footballers I've seen play for United. And you know, it took a little while for people. You know, you you, you can get outdone by pace, but ultimately, if you're thinking smartly. And Ashley Young just had a brilliant thinking game. Um, and this is what I think Mourinho was really drumming into United as a squad. And it might not be pretty to watch at the minute, but I do think that once that all clicks, that we'll start to see the kind of Mourinho side, like what Chelsea were, when they blew everybody away with 100 plus goals and nearly 100 points in, you know, five, like the Real Madrid side that he managed that, that, that scored more goals than Barcelona did for three years. Well, I think once he's got that embedded into the team, we'll see a bit more of that. But he's t- he's teaching Manchester United players to be intelligent, within the game, and to have plans and to be able to make changes. And you know, when you look at the number of games that Mourinho's lost since he's been at United, I think he's, I think he's played now something like 110 games, and I think they've lost about 13 or 14. Well, I must That's admit, I've, record.
1: for the for the Sams have tuned in to United We Stand podcast, it's I've been I've been interested into how you talk about is man management so not even football management just how he is as a manager you talk you compare it to your life in your kind of your corporate world and whatever and you can Mm. see the parallels it's interesting that you look at in that way it's not that's not heroic is it that's just doing a good job isn't it
2: yeah good leadership Um, Mm. and good leadership and man management ultimately becomes a really really integral part of of leading an organization which he is doing and you get this listen and Klopp's got Liverpool firing because he's equally very, very good at it. I just think he lacks the ability to defend the game. And I've said this so, so many times. I'm going to get back to your question about what did he do well. Um, has got in his locker the ability to win any game in any style that he thinks is right. And I'm sorry for the purists out there. Um, but we're not there to entertain neutrals. We are to win games of football and ultimately win trophies. So, you know, if we've got a manager, who can do that. Um, and I, You know, I I used to be a chess player, me, and I love people who can think and be strategically brilliant. And you know, I really enjoyed watching some of the pieces of this jigsaw that Mourinho's piecing together Mm. starting to come to place. And he's got people who who are suddenly starting to play better than what they were capable of. And you know, we've still got players in that side that you know we ain't going to win Champions Leagues with, and we probably won't even win a title with. So he's got that skill to deal with. But his job at the minute is. This is what I've got in front of me. So, either I get the best results for my football club and the people that follow me um, out of that. And, you know, for him to be, you know, he's got a defence that I don't think he can trust particularly much. I think they've all got a rick in them every now and then. I think you get games like the weekend where they just all have a decent game and then there's no I've done. But, um, but even then, you know, that moment of madness from Danny Banning, really, I'm still not sure what he was particularly doing. They've all got that within them. So, you know, he knows that they're quite open at the back to either mistakes or to pace. Mm. And I think it was absolutely no surprise that he's got a midfield in front of him um, who's, who's largely going to have to concentrate on, first and foremost, not losing games of football. And then, hopefully, with opportunities that come their way, um, try and win games of football now. One thing that's obviously been touted around all over the weekend is is that United managed to win a game of football with 32% possession. Well, you can slap that off what you like. I think that's an exceptional level of performance and the level of achievement because ultimately he knew what he was going to be up against. Every single United fan going in that ground knew that Liverpool were going to have a lot of the ball and that the front three were capable of tearing United to pieces. For being able to construct a winning side out of 32% possession, is exceptional management, exceptional coaching. Is it pretty? Probably not. Um, does that something that's sustainable at United? No, it isn't, because ultimately the expectation will be that he builds on that and then starts to get towards some of the more traditional things that United are associated with. But one thing Reno is is, is, is the ultimate pragmatist, and he'll know for, first and foremost, I can play the most. If I start playing 8 football every week and get a B2-3, um, you know, every week, then at some point he's going to get fired and he doesn't want to do that. So, you know, I think all of the points about defensive football and this, that, and the other—the observations are absolutely right. But I think what people have got to put it into perspective is, you know, where's Mourinho at? What's he got at his disposal from a defence point of view? Um, and he's just doing the right things, and that's well, no, the most I think, people at United realise that.
1: I think taking your chess analogy, you know, it's sort of uh, as much as losing you never like to do. It was a it was a cracking game of football, and, and the irony was. Klopp talks about football being about moments and two of the key ones were clinical ones by United where the ball went in, so, yeah. you know, 32% possession doesn't matter. In fact, I mean, I think Liverpool yeah. beat City with 40%
2: possession at Anfield, you know, it's yeah, like... it happens. It's interesting though, because they, they, somebody showed me, there was um, there was a time when Chelsea beat United, what, no, with, hmm. oh, it was almost like a role reversal a couple of years back and, hmm. you know, it was like, it was I think, Mourinho against Ferguson... You know, we had 70% of the ball, we had 80% of past success rates, That we had like 18 shots to their three, they had mm. one corner, we had 10. At the time, that was described in the media as a masterclass of tactics by Jose Mourinho. Now, because he's in a reverse scenario and he's just easy to get at because of A, who he is, and B, now where he's managing... You know, it's almost like the hypocrisy of people in media about things like that. You know, it reaches the high heaven. The reality is, is he's taken the Manchester United side, a broken Manchester United side from sixth place in nowhere. He's only won two trophies. He's taken that side from sixth into what at the minute is a comfortable second. Um, they've already surpassed last season's goal talent. They've already surpassed last season's win tally. Room where United and everybody else are currently being talked about is Manchester City, Pep Guardiola, and what he's got down around and That's what people have got up, you know, aspire to be. I'm afraid, but you know, he's doing a really, really good job. And as much as I think people would rather United were playing more attackingly and not setting out to not get the, I think admirably, that's what he's got to do at the minute. I mean, if he carries on doing that season after season, I think that that's going to change the landscape of that in terms of expectation will change. But, you know, so now he's doing exactly the right thing. And one thing I want from the Manchester United manager is, and you saw it, you know, you look at his, his whole demeanour. You know, and we had a piece in our last mag, just a little snippet about, you know, we, we get a little bit of insight from, that guy is absolutely loved by just about everybody at that football club, but he's loving life at Manchester United. And you get the sense with Mourinho that this sort of, this sort of almost this troubled person striving to find something that made him happy all of these other clubs that he's been at you look at him now you know his demeanor in press conferences is a lot more controlled his demeanor on the pitch and on the touchline is a lot more controlled he just seems to be at peace with himself and with what he's got going on around him and I quite like seeing that Jose Mourinho but you also want to see the Mourinho who you know every now and then lets out the old Mourinho shows a little bit of his snide side like he did in the press conference where he literally dismissed Conte in, in the that was quite off-season. remarkable.
1: That was quite remarkable. It was,
2: it was an astounding piece of rehearsed. You know, you could tell it was that well delivered. He said the night before. He, you could just see him stood in the mirror, probably practicing that, can't he? But he's in a good place. And you know, re, you know, regardless of what people think, um, the winner of that game at the weekend was Jose Mourinho and yeah. his tactics and the homework that he did. And he did a far, far, far better job than what his apart did.
1: Now, one last thing before you go, uh, we're, we're entering springtime and it's going to start warming up, which I guess for you and your guys outside grounds is a, is a welcome, welcome sight and feeling, I suppose. What's the, I mean, and you're one of the few that are still, you know, you haven't, you haven't gone to all online yet. So what's the world of physical fanzines like in 2018?
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, United We Stand has been there for a long time. Um, Twenty-nine years. It started in, in nineteen eighty-nine with Andy Mitten, um, and he's still the editor. He's absolute baby, and he's absolute priority. And you know, the ethos throughout of us all is that um, as much as we embrace the digital age, obviously, podcasts and various other things like cause, you know, that's what people want. And um, mm-hmm. we will always, always have the printed fanzine absolutely at the centre of what we're here to do. And you know, it's. Uh, for me a staple part of match going culture, the printed fanzine, something you screw up and put it in your back pocket and you read. You know, it's just an important part of match day culture and that. and it really upsets me and everybody else when we hear about fanzines going to the wall largely because of print bills, largely because of, you know, the fact that people don't want print anymore. But oh, yeah. you do get some as well and you know, but the one I always point out when asked this question is when 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 Sky has it, they they didn't run out of content or had issues with print, they just going to of people who stand outside the ground and sell it. And you know, the fanzine seller is one of the most important parts of the fanzine culture. And having people who'd be happy to stand there, you know, um, in all kinds of weather, and mm. certainly being in Manchester, that tests you on the weather front more than it does in Manchester. I imagine it does. <laughs> oh, mate, but de- honestly, did de- December just gone I mean, I've been doing this for decades, as as we all have. Um, I'm 46 years of age, I don't need to do it, I do it because I love it um you know it's it's actually it's actually quite therapeutic believe it or not to in a in a when i've got other things going on in my, in my life and in my work it's actually nice to stand on the street for 3 hours and watch the world go by but december particularly where the weather was hanging the wind and the it was it was seriously grim and you know it hits your morale as a seller um it hits your mag from a sales point of view because people don't want to stop buying. you know it, it's a challenging time and um you know that added to all of the other things i described before um you know any fanzine that's still going in print gets our respect massively but you know we've still got great content we've got a load of good writers um you know it's still going very very well we're, we're happy with our print sales we're still selling you know um more printed mags than we were say ten years ago, which is really really pleasing um so you know that's all that's all good and we've managed to do that by you know. Not having some of the more online things that sit around, we've not allowed them to sort of take the dominance uh, over uh, over what's centre stage in our organisation, which is is is, is the printed mag, and we will forever be passionate about printed mags, and particularly where right, you know it to so you know, it's a good laugh, and you get to meet loads of characters. You know, people stopping by you know, you get the usual amount of grief obviously, um, you know, when results don't go your way. Um, you know, people seem to think that it's all the salaries, of fans and and you get you get numerous <laughs> numerous uh numerous descriptions of where you can put your magazine on as as people are running past on the way up. But um you know, you also get lots of chirp from the way as well. It can be quite difficult on that front. Um you know, sadly, we got quite a, well, I got a load of abuse at the weekend, some of it not particularly pleasant, which, you know, um, I can look after myself on that front, but, you know, we've got young lads out there selling mags, and, you know, you get it sometimes in big games, but you certainly also get it when you get sort of clubs from sort of lower leagues who, who end up with allocations of eight or nine thousand in an FA Cup game. and... You know, literally, you get every every tiner from every town, um, literally, <laughs> rocks up to, to 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 cause you all kinds of headache, and that that can be quite that can be hard work sometimes. Hmm. Um, you know, I think fans in culture. Um, the fact that it's still alive speaks volumes. Um, I think the fact that people still put time, effort, and money into it. Um, and listen, I should add, it's not just United. We've done Red News. He's already through the thirty-year barrier. Mm. Um, Barney, who's, who's been there, you know, he was the first fanzine at United. Um, you know, he's he's um, he's still on the street doing it with his lads, and you know, it's great to see that. Um, so you know, we've got um, we've got two. To long-standing fanzines still on the streets, and um, you know it, it's it's great to walk around Old Trafford and still see um, and still see people up there with the mag in the air, shouting that it's available. And um, long, long may that continue because, as I said, it's uh, a really really critical Indeed. part of, uh, of match day culture.
1: Well, look, hopefully I'll still be hosting this show in 2019, and we'll uh, we'll make sure we celebrate 30 years of United. We stand for you. Yeah, well, that'll be good. I'm sure me, Andy, or any of
2: us uh, will uh, we'll be glad to come back on and uh It'll be, it'd be a pleasure.
1: Well, look, thanks for giving us your views on uh, the United-Liverpool game. Any sound nice. to you soon. The Whistleblowers is back for the season by Ladbrokes. Thank you, Steve, there, for giving us your insight into Man United and fans in culture. Uh, welcome the rows between two thorns, the meat between two slices of roughly cooked bread, I think. Um, <laughs> Mark Webster. Hello, Mark.
3: Hello there. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to think, yeah, probably a you know, whole meal, take what you like. I don't mind. I will be any form of meat product you need in this particular situation.
1: <laughs> Which would be better than the situation that makes me call you to ask about
3: West Ham. Oh, yeah. I was Well, I was in the middle of that as well, strangely enough. Yeah, it's an interesting position to be in, yeah. Were you looking uh, at the director's box or were you heading for the tube? I I, I found myself I, I found myself deliberately not looking at the director's box because I don't need to look around and peer to know what's going on because mm. it's happened before, it'll happen again. Uh, it's unedifying and it would serve no purpose me doing so. But I did, yeah, leg it perhaps with 10 minutes or so to go, 3-0 down, um, because it just struck me that there was not much else to stick around for. And and by the way, uh, much in the way that you might argue Arsenal fans did, and I think West Brom fans sort of just out of, probably because so, their souls are so destroyed, uh, I, if I'm going to protest, it would be by standing up and walking out and turning my back on them. That's That's kind of pretty much as physical as my protest would ever get, really. Well, I mean,
1: I mean, in, in different circumstances, it certainly worked for Liverpool when the fans made themselves known about ticket prices. So, yeah, do you? Do you? I mean, it was interesting. I was reading uh, Jim Kern's piece in the Guardian, and I think he summed it up best, where he said, you, "West Ham in the move from Upton Park to the London Stadium, the argument was you'll be a better team, but what you've got is a similar team to what you had when you were Upton Park. So, why did we move?"
3: Yeah, I don't think those uh, the the last part of that doesn't I think add up to the first part of the sentence. I think there is definitely the the the, the, the bag that what was sold I think to West Ham fans, and I think with it there was a kind of a sense of destiny or inevitability mm-hmm. is the notion that with this new stadium we can now provide you with the with a, with a, a manager of the team and uh, buying a squad of players that will compete at the top half of the table. And then when you get to walk into that stadium, you are lulled into that full sense of security that this is the stadium of champions. This is the stadium of a top of the Premier League side. Mm. Look at it. It's wonderful. It's marvellous. The setting suggests that. Now, the problem is, in fact, is what we ended up doing was simply removing what we had at Upton Park and dunking it, dumping it inside that space. Are you, it, the, are you
1: suggesting it's fur coat and no
3: knickers? Uh, that's a pretty much as good as it gets. That is exactly right. What you get is uh, – and I think what the, what that goes with is that we have found – if there's a kind of metaphor for this, it might be that we have uh, an ownership that, that, is, that has proven they – they did their knowledge. They, they'll get you from Heathrow down to the West End – on a wet Friday night because they know the roads and they're capable of that and they're mm. very good at that kind of thing. Well, unfortunately, they're in an F1 car now and it's Silverstone. <laughs> and, and and I just don't think they... I don't think even they anticipated... I think they were perhaps as starry... Because they are fans. Mm. You know, you've got two men of fans. I think they were perhaps as naive and starry-eyed or arrogant and stupid. Mm. You know, there's, there's variations on the theme there. As the rest of us were, we got caught up, I think, a lot of the fans, and patently, you still had the naysayers, but a lot of naysayers, I think, were drowned, uh, sort of like dwarfed by the fact that you've got 55,000 or something like that turning up, mm-hmm. and a lot of people buying into it. <coughs> Excuse me, Stu, I think the bottom, there's a really simple bottom line to this all. Go on. It's that if we had been half decent and better and not struggling, none of this would be an issue. And it never is with football, te- uh, football clubs, I don't think. Very rarely will you see a situation where that you get that kind of the, 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 what's bubbling underneath. The poison that's bubbling underneath suddenly bubbles to the top. If your team's going okay.
1: Well, I, I seem to remember conversations you and I had when you were flying in your final season. Where it was almost like, this will come back and bite us.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, that, that, I always said that that season was unreal, yeah. and that the following season would be equally unreal. Mm. This was meant to be the year where you kind of got some sense of normality, and wider taken would be perfectly adequate. But we haven't even managed perfectly adequate. In fact, it's you know it's it's got worse, and it's dangerously bad, and what goes with that is all of the combination of things that emerged is that 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 we that we get rid of a manager that was popular but couldn't really do the job and it was made clear by owners that it wasn't the bloke they wanted in the first place they then bring in a man who's 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 been a serial failure of recent seasons who seemed to straighten sort of like steady the ship and then it started to you know it started to tip over again mm. uh, players have been bought for good money and sold again for good money you've uh, they've been loaned out they've been They've been called out as no good by the by the people that employed them. Everything you add everything adds up. It's just there's, there's loads and loads and loads of little bits and pieces that have all come together to create that kind of toxic environment that that burst like a like a nasty spot on the forehead mm. on Saturday against Burnley. And and you, that's what you saw. You saw you saw some of the pus coming out.
0: In well,
1: that's in that, interesting. That it's interesting, Matt, because I think it, it's there's, there's, I think there's an element of, um, of faux surprise going on in the media, isn't there? Because on the one hand, you've got the strong argument from the West Ham fan base who are kind of willing to go with it. But, get, but over two years since being in the London, St- 18 months after being in the London Stadium, they go, well, do you know what? You've broken promises here and you've not really invested in the squad like you, like you suggested you might. And then within the club, there's disbelief that there was so much animosity and dark mood when Ashley yeah. Barnes takes the lead for Burnley. It's like, that's such a disconnect, isn't it, in terms of it, a public face? But
3: It completely is. I mean, because, as I say, I, I think that there was, I, you know, I, I think there was a, a, a certain arrogance. There was still the basking in the glory of the fact that they had this, that they'd managed to secure, and with a brilliant deal, this marvellous mm. venue and that venue is still not it's still not a dead dog yet it's there's still a chance that with a decent manager and the right team in other words you know a you know a, a, a club that's that's doing okay that place could be okay where i sit in that stadium is sort of like the inner sanctum the, the sort of like the lower area mm. and it and it does feel like on a good day like a football ground Right. Now I'm I'm not prepared to say it's Upton Park, you know, because there is absolutely no point in playing apples and oranges for that place. Mm. The old the old days are done. I mean, that's the other part of this thing is that is that to be bitter and twisted about something which is which is irretrievable is a pointless exercise. But it's there's perfect. There uh, is a perfectly legitimate uh, response to say this is not what you told us would happen if we moved. And I think it's just been. I think what's happened is it's just been. Perhaps step by step, perhaps sporadically, perhaps in a, with a kind of drip drip effect. It's just been very very poorly handled upstairs on a regular ongoing basis, leaving us where West Ham are now, which is teetering on the brink of going down in an enormous arena.
1: Yeah, because I was—I mean, I mean, uh, Wikipedia is not always the best source, but I'm, uh, that's my reference. You know, Sullivan is purported to be net worth one billion pounds, so clearly. He's, he knows strategy when it, when it, when he sees it.
3: Yeah, but, he, he's a it, successful businessman. But
1: it doesn't you know. it doesn't seem to reflect in how he's going about. I mean, admittedly, we've seen until maybe Mourinho arrived at Man United a series of haphazard decisions as to who to take charge of Man United. So yeah, it, it's not with it's not just West Ham who, who no football seems incapable sometimes. I think of of seeing a future,
3: but only knowing the moment. I think Matches, I mean, Manchester, you know, the old man city is not that long past in football history. No, that's uh, true. But, it's, it, but it's easy, but it's easy to they changed grounds, they took on a a sports stadium, they, you know, they, they, they had to get new ownership in, they were, they were, they were sort of, you know, they went down, there was, have, you'd have had a, um, no doubt there were echoes of what happened on Saturday, or indeed the feelings that have been felt for the last few months, you know, with West Ham fans inside their new stadium, would have occurred at, at this, you know, in, at, for Manchester, the blue half of Manchester, mm. so, you know, a, but precedent, there's precedence all over football, yeah. for uh, it not being quite right at your football club, to varying degrees, And this is the current version. I suppose West Ham's unique position is that they happen to be the football club that plays football in a non-football stadium. So you've got that part of it. But what they've also then done to sort of like really just to underpin that issue, they've been terrible, fundamentally terrible with, with, with sackings of managers and very poor buying of players. Which is the A1 mistake any football club can yeah. make, isn't it? <laughs> if, if that, had, And again, I'll go back to the point. is if they'd have got the management right and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the buying of players right, I think there would have been, well, you know, it'd be nice if around the ground there were better bar facilities and it would be, look, it'd be better inside here if, if, if we had a bit more West Ham livery. And it'd be a lot nicer if it didn't say London on the badge and, and we had our old castle. And you, and so suddenly the superficial things would have just been that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But in, the, in recent weeks, they've become fundamentals. And and what that what's happened is is this this little strange moment, this little bubble in conversation, one of the ones that they're not forever blowing, in which you've had to this world in which they think they're fixing it all by correcting mistakes like badge design and sweet stalls on the concourse. Which sounds, when you say these things out loud, sound trivial. Now, you do a load of it together. You add all those little bits and pieces together and you perhaps do create a much better picture. But it doesn't matter if the team is flirting with relegation. And that really is the simple bottom line of it all.
1: I remember when um, the sort of tail end of Hicks and Gillette with Liverpool and fans, you ended up being tired of talking about things that were nothing to do with
3: football. W- were the game, yeah. I mean,
1: you know, suddenly you know about leverage buyouts and you're like thinking why do i know about leverage buyouts yeah um so do you think there's a kind of part of the fatigue of this is that and the anger is that i'm fed up for west ham fans i'm fed up of talking about not football
3: it's it, would well, you know what ever since the days of the the legendary days of the karnsies you know mm. they had one of the first really kind of ho- pro, uh, high profile ownerships mm. which were local lads, and, uh, and, and to a great extent, very nearly brought the club to its knees, as did the Icelandic operation. So it is a, you know, it's a hardy annual part of being a West Ham fan. It's the <laughs> latest disaster. Um, this is the latest disaster, but it's the latest disaster not in the old ground. Right, okay. So, it's, so, it, so you know, that it's, it's a heightened issue. Mm. It's a heightened issue by the fact that we don't get to sulk, moan, bitch, fight, scream inside the bowling ground, We have to do it in this currently sterile space, which ne- was never meant to be a football ground.
1: Do you buy that the, um, the, the I think, it's literally the news coming out today as the, I mean, I'm sure this will make football f- West Ham fans feel happy, as they go off for five days for uh, warm weather training Miami. in Florida, in Florida uh, the fact that the, 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 there's no quote to this. It's just that no players actually said it, but the players are fearing that the animosity towards West Ham is going to undermine their relegation fight.
3: I'll have no, I, I cannot, I will have no. Listen, I don't care if they go to Miami or not. There's, a, there's course, a very reasonable course. excuse, a, a, a argument that says it, it's, you know, that for football players, that's a good idea is to go away and train me warm weather. Mm. The fact that, and, and uh, I hate it when they take away those things because they make it sound like a holiday. When they withdraw warm weather training privileges. Yeah, yeah. Like it's work, punishing. It? <laughs> but in fact, they're meant to be going there working. So why, why, why are you stopping? If you thought it was a good idea to take the, to make them a better team, why is it now a bad idea? You know, so that, 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 I think that's a misnomer, but that's, I don't think they're doing that one there. Um, I, I will have none of this old fanny that <laughs> it's now, it's now the fans job to pull together to, I'll tell you what it is. I give them my money and sit down. They get paid loads of money and run around. Yeah. I think you'll find that they're in the position to improve this, not me. Yeah, there's, there's, a, clear, not, there's a clear delineation of responsibility, I think, there in the yeah, transaction. And, and, and that tends to be, always tends to be, with those who are getting given the money to do it, not those who are paying for the privilege of watching it. So I'll tell you how you improve the, the, the mood in the ground is not being rubbish, <laughs> you don't. You, the, the 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 mood doesn't. Im- the chicken and egg of this one is straightforward. The, so, the football team do better. The crowd get the the crowd m- mood improves. It does not work the other way around.
1: So with with hand on heart, then is there as a final question? Is there three teams worse than West Ham to keep you? Yes,
3: yeah, the only, only the only thing that you cling on to is the tragedy of watching Palace play really well in a couple of games and not getting a point. And I hate myself for thinking it, and then, but quietly just go, thank God for that.
1: Out of interest, is that, I mean, from a, it's this, I I often do it when it's the, you know, the Liverpool's often failed races for fourth, and in recent years, the race for fourth that they got last year, where... There comes a joy from other teams losing that you, that seems almost equal to your winning.
3: Oh, no, it's it's, uh, it's it's some form of flagellation, isn't it? Really, you know, it's it's you know, you, it, it shouldn't feel so. It it, it it hurts, but it feels good at the same time. It's not, I mean, basically, you just need. You know, we're in that other position. We, we need three. We need. We're crap. We need three crapper teams. Mm. And luckily, thus far. There's at least three deliveries. So, um, it, and, and and as I say, I feel terrible for that. But but but, I, but I've got to be honest with myself. Of course, I'm delighted that there are three teams who are struggling. Well, fingers giving crossed giving us a fighting chance. And by the way, when I say fighting chance, I just mean obviously on the field of play. Oh, mm. I don't even mean on the field of play because that's where some of the fighting happened anyway. I just mean you know, that we've got a chance as a football team to not go down. I must admit, there is
1: there, there is something funny about. How uh, a fan that goes on the pitch is suddenly no longer a fan, and the team that they support, i.e., the players on the pitch, will do their utmost to tackle said invader.
3: Oh yeah, well, he's, I mean, well, no one else will. So Mark Noble obviously being a being a fan and a player at the same time, so he, he was he was perfect. He was he's absolutely fully qualified to be the man who brings a fella to the floor, like in like WWE, but um. No, listen, and this is the other sort of part. Of this as well is that there was so much talk about you know before this game with the march that was called off, mm. and the phrase "real fan" crops up. It's, again, that's a, that's a bogus phrase. I don't buy into that because every fan's a real fan. They just they just do their fan thing in a different way. Some think they're more special, more important, more intensely a fan. Good luck to them, but they don't represent me. I've, I'm a fan in the way that I am. So are other people. Um, and I think you saw clearly is that, that during the game of football, you had six or eight fellas run onto the field of play, I think probably thinking that they had the spirit of the, of the stadium with them in, in, in running on the pitch to display their anger to the board, where in fact they found that you had a, the, the, the vast majority of people seemed to think, get off the pitch, we're playing a game of football.
1: I like the fact that they were cheered and booed in equal measure.
3: Yeah, well, I, I, I think... Well, actually, I, I don't think that's the case, to be honest with you. I mean, you may have got the sense that there was cheering. You may have got the sense that, that the first... Uh, you know, the first fella might have been treated like a streaker at cricket. Yeah. But after that, it, be, it, it it was not that at all. And, and even it, it, just him as well. There was the, the, pretty much anyone who thought it was fun or funny was drowned out pretty quickly by people who realised that that a game of football and their team was being jeopardised. And let's be honest about it. They could probably very easily, have the finger point of saying, I mean, West Ham have got plenty of ways to lose a game of football. What they don't need is, is help from their fans by coming on the pitch and completely disrupting what's going on. Indeed, indeed. Well, look, thanks very much for uh, giving Precious us you. giving your insight
1: there. Uh, much appreciated. And our final part of this bonus episode of Whistleblowers, we have got Neil Atkinson of the Anfield Wrap to give the Liverpool side of the Man United Liverpool game. Hello, Neil. Hello, there, Well, look, um, before we get into that, you've, as well as football watching and football podcast and website running, you've also made a movie uh, called Native, a brilliant cerebral sci-fi movie, uh, starring Rupert Graves and Ellie Kendrick. Uh, And that's out now, isn't it? So how can people see it?
4: Oh, people can see it from all the obvious places. So it's in Amazon, it's on Sky Go, it's on uh, Apple Film or iTunes. You can get it all through all of those places. Uh, It is available. It is currently, uh, I think it's on the UK and US, all of those places as it stands, uh, but it will be getting into other English speaking markets as well. So, if people do want to give it a real look, and you know, there's the scenery in there that you painted, Stu. If we all want to be honest about it, they can admire your work as well. <laughs> uh, and so, that is that is that is available, uh, it's available from all of those places at the moment and will be for the foreseeable future as well.
1: Brilliant, brilliant. Now, uh, Anfield rap is a rather sort of unique uh, part of football football fan culture in the sense that you've you've gone that stage further and developed a subscriber base that pays to access what you're doing as well as as well as uh, the more traditional route which I talked earlier with uh, Steve Armstrong about which is selling fanzine so what what do people get for that?
4: And how much is Well, first it? and foremost, the, first and foremost, the Anfield Raptors do two free shows a week. Okay, um, so they, they come out they come out tend to come out on Mondays and on Fridays. Right. Uh, so they, if people want to sample what we do, they can go there. Uh, and what we do on those shows is obviously we look back uh, at the weekend's game on the Monday show, and we look ahead on the uh, on the on the Friday show to the weekend game which is to come. So people can see you know, can, can listen to them. But then, as part of the tour player service, we we do stuff that covers a whole wide range of. We don't and, and just stick to that as well. We do just, we do, we do uh, expansive weekend preview shows on our Friday show. Uh, we look back at, our, at what's happened with clubs up and down the country on our coach home show. We look at every single game straight afterwards with an immediate post-match show. And then we do a view show as well. Uh, So people can see, they can see what we, you know, take the last look at the game. Uh, We've got that one in there. And then we look to do special stuff around interviews, around looking at sort of Liverpool in depth. And we see ourselves as much talking about the culture of the city. As we do see ourselves talking just about the culture of, of or what's happening on the pitch, and we try to combine all of that. And for that, people can pay five pounds a month. There's about fifty shows, uh, which are subscriber only shows that come out on a monthly basis. Uh, about fifty of them, uh, and we think that you know it's very much worth the money. And, and you know we, we we did a customer satisfaction survey, and a hundred percent of those who responded to the survey uh, said that they felt that it was value for money. So we're really proud of it, really. So if people want to get on board. It's theanfieldrap.com.
1: Just just before we get into the game, how have you found sort of growing the content you do and not needing to really, because I mean I listen to you a lot and so I kind of hear the shows, you've not needed to get closer to the club at all at any stage, you've carried on being this fan powered
4: output haven't you? Very much so, yeah, and the way in which you do it is by having a really strong pool of, of contributors. I think one of the things that's missed for the Anfield rappers in terms of people who've, who've sat in studios and talked about football with us in the last 12 to 18- Literally just coming to Liverpool and talking to us, there's probably now over 100 people. Mm. So, having that breadth of voices and that breadth of contributors helps firstly represent the city, you know, and the city doesn't just mean people who are from Liverpool, but people who are here now, Mm. because, you know, that's the sort of city Liverpool is. And so, we get a lot of, a wide range of different voices. And, you know, that that helps keep us sharp. And then it's a matter of being creative within that and also working out what those people want to talk about. You know, I've got. With the main are the best when they're given the opportunity to be funny. Who's best when they're given the opportunity to be cerebral? Who likes a good row? Mm. Uh, you know, we can we can work all of that out, and so that that allows you to constantly be able to be fresh. And that's hopefully why it remains fresh. Really, we don't want to rest on our laurels. We're we're always looking for new voices as well. One of our main things is you know is the idea that people can get into Liverpool to talk. Then you know, we're given the opportunity to do so, to be honest with you, and I, I, you know we'll give we'll give people a try, and we just look to look to keep moving forward. And that's direction. That well, more power to your elbows, sir.
1: We can't put this off any longer. Thank you. We're going to have to talk about Liverpool. Man <laughs> United. We're going to, have to talk about Man United 2, Liverpool one. Now, in the run-up to the game, and I said this to Steve's. So I will repeat it to you. It was like they were the tight, tightest defence at home. We were the f- most free-scoring away from home. But also, for the first time in my living memory, the bookies had us as favourites. Where did it go wrong?
4: I think first and foremost, Liverpool, Liverpool didn't quite manage to carry out their brand of football as well as Manchester United managed to carry out theirs. And I think that, that can be said across the course of the 90 minutes. That's not just sort of, you know, even when Liverpool were on top, passes mm. just, just weren't quite clicking as you'd expect them to. I thought Liverpool's movement and interchange wasn't quite present in the same way. And that's before you get onto specific individual errors and battles lost, to be honest with you. I think, you know, it, it wasn't as though Liverpool were kicking the door down. The hair wasn't forced into great save after great save. And so that has to be acknowledged. You know, this isn't as something as simple as, as Liverpool, you know, per se, sort of turning up and doing the business. But nor, on the other hand, you know, I've seen Liverpool sides and it's been the case that Liverpool sides, and it was mad that we were favourites. It's been the case that Liverpool sides, Liverpool sides that have won European Cups, Liverpool sides that, if you go back, won well, league titles in the 80s, would go to Old Trafford and fail to perform. And I don't think, being fair, this group of players exactly failed to perform. I thought they were scrapping until the bitter end. They felt that they were in it. They didn't wilt. And I've seen better Liverpool sides wilt, or at least Liverpool sides that are perceived to have stronger characters in, wilt, uh, under similar circumstances at Old Trafford. So I think all in, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot that Liverpool can take from the game as a positive. But the main negative that I'd take wouldn't actually be the individual errors. It would be that when, put under a bit of pressure on a big stage. I think Liverpool's attacking players just forced things a little bit too much, just made poor decisions. And when they when the pressure did come on and they were behind, they just weren't quite as crisp as we've seen them in recent when The football's been a bit more straightforward.
1: It's, it's inter- it was interesting seeing how, uh, obviously, we dominated the ball, not necessarily the attacking player, but we certainly dominated the ball. Um, but something Klopp always says, which is that um, football's about moments. And Mourinho's gamble to be clinical in the moments he got paid off a treat, didn't
3: it?
4: It did, yeah. And that's down to fancy footballers. I mean, you know, managers can put the best the, the best laid plans in, but the footballers have still got to execute them. And you know, huge credit to Lukaku and Rashford. On Lukaku, I felt that his performance a few weeks back against Chelsea didn't get the press it deserved. Mm. I thought that was an all-action, centre-forward performance that day. And for whatever reason, it was crossed over at the time. I think I think he's an oddly Endlessly unfashionable footballer, Lukaku, and I think he's terrific. Um, I really do think he's terrific, although he's terrific at Everton, and I think he's been far better than the general consensus has allowed him to be at Manchester United. Mm. Um, and he's now had key influences in two games against two other sides who were in the top five. Uh, and I think that that you know, should, should lay to rest some sort of notion that he's not fit for Manchester United. Um, and I think you saw that, you know. And I think that's, again, you've got to talk about individual errors, and, and people will. But the point of spending somewhere between 75 million and 90 million pounds on a centre forward is so he's able to, to dominate his opponents. That's one of the things that you're paying for. But we find it difficult to acknowledge that instead of well, what they tend to do is to get on the back of individuals. Similarly Rashford, you know he's had a had great press, Rashford but he's not quite delivered whenever I've seen him uh, or seen him regularly uh, but you can't argue with that. At the weekend, that's what delivery is. Uh, he's given opportunities and he took them and he was given a really clear plan in terms of what he was going to do and he executed it and so I think that, you know, that's there's two instances where Manchester United players have played really, really well, and I think that that's the that's the key thing to take from it. Really, is that you know we we talk a lot about managers, and at times I would say sometimes a little bit too much or in the wrong way. Whereas you know if you are given a clear plan from your manager and you go out there and you execute it, then yeah, your manager deserves massive credit. But so did so too do those footballers, and you know fair play to Lukaku and Rushford, they ended up on the winning side, and they're able to look at their performance and say, well, we deserve to end up on the winning side.
1: I think I think what's interesting, reflecting on what Stephen said, which obviously you're not been privy to, so I'll, I'll give you a kind of a what, what I'm getting at is that it, it seems that Mourinho, after all the media that's tried to say he's no good for United, is coming good in whatever that means because he's getting the results, he's had his trophies, and he's now second. And in a year when City don't um, occupy place zero, which because they're not. They're not in the league, are they really, where they are in some senses. Um, this would be a brilliant title challenge where Liverpool would have just fell off the pace a little in that game and be five points behind with a few games left. And yet, Mourinho's not had much credit at all, whereas Klopp has had plenty placed at his door, as has Pochettino, for the way they play football. There the seems to me that this year, <laughs> Mourinho's given us like, almost like a, Mar- a Manchester United paradox. Um they are clearly a, a top team in the league, but yet nobody wants to tell tell us they're any good.
4: I, I think I was saying before the before the game that obviously a really good side, but I think there's a big problem that if you, if you if you are the sort of manager and have the sort of managerial approach that bases itself wholly on results, mm. and then someone else gets better results than you, not a bit better, a lot better, mm. and if they also get their results that are a lot better. By playing significantly more attractive and aesthetically pleasing football, and they happen to play in the same city as you, then you're going to get grief. <laughs> and I think that that's, I think that, I think, and I think that Mourinho's got to frankly cop for that to a certain extent. And Manchester United supporters have nothing to please Man United more than if they were playing horrible dog football and found themselves currently two points clear to Manchester City. Mm. And that'll be completely fine. And it's, a, you know, I think that you know United. That's what a lot of uh, there's a there's a, there's a Core of United supporters who go regularly home and away would be absolutely made up with that. And i take the hat off to you that I'm, 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 you know, I'm probably one of their people. I would love that as well if that was a Liverpool scenario and all of that sort of stuff. Mm. But the reality, and the reality that hurts Mourinho and hurts Manchester United and still hurts Manchester United supporters, is that there is a side in their city who is getting many, many, many more wins than them, scoring many, many, many more goals and playing significantly better and more attractive football. That's the reality that they've got to deal with and they've got to cope with. And as I say, you can undo that reality if Manchester United go on and win the Champions League this season. If they win a Champions League and FA Cup double, everyone will say, you know what, they've done brilliantly, the manager's done brilliantly, so on and so forth. If, though, paying very, very similar wages, spending similar amounts on transfers, if, though, they don't, uh, you know, they go out to the Cup, they find themselves uh, going out to the Champions League and they only come second in the league or even if they come third, then there will be criticism. Whereas what clock and Pochettino were able to point out, rightly or wrongly, this only happens for a certain length of time. As well before results become all important, is a progression and is an approach which is about something else. And they can by being able to do that, they can really you know that, that's why they'll get themselves better press. But also because if we are all playing for second, then it doesn't matter as much. And so we're not all sitting sat round obsessed with results. We're not all going oh God, who's going to you know how on earth are we going to win this game? What's going to go on here? Because if, as long as those two managers secure a top four finish, then they're able to say, "Yeah, that's job done." And by the way, everyone has a lovely time on the gym.
1: Do you see a, a future though, where where Klopp can bring to Liverpool a pragmatism at the moments when he needs it, when going out winning four nil isn't as important as winning the game?
4: Oh, very much so. Yeah, I think that that's where you. That's. I, I think that that's where you're gonna. Um, you know, that's what next season becomes about where if Manchester City did have ten, fifteen points fewer, then mm. we would all be sitting around right now and we'd be saying good lord or if Liverpool Man United and Spurs all that, or between them at five to ten points more, then yeah, that'll be important. And you talk about it, can you see a point in the future? I could see a point at this time last season. This time last season, Liverpool's football was frankly dire. It was week in, week out, just all about grinding results out to ensure that we got the top four finish. Um, and Liverpool did get that top four finish in Liverpool's football to grind those results out. There were, there were a couple of sticking points up the way. There was a horrible 1-0 no, win at Watford with the Emery can overhead kick. There was a at home to Southampton where Liverpool were frankly pretty poor and didn't go for it. So you know, Klopp, when the situation presents itself, is as capable as being of, of putting you know being pretty dire with his football if he needs to. But that's pragmatism, and I think that this is where the Mourinho thing falls down at times. Is Mourinho would love to tell you that his football was pragmatic football. And so many people go along with that because what they've done is they've got pragmatism confused as a synonym for defensive Pragmatic football and defensive football are not the same things. Pragmatic football is the football that gets you results. Yeah. And if the best way you can get results is by playing expansive, open, attacking football, then the pragmatic thing to do is to play expansive, open, attacking football. This time last season, Liverpool were very, very pragmatic. They played pretty dire stuff, but that's because Mane was injured. Firmino and Coutinho were both absolutely shattered. And there wasn't a strength in depth. Henderson had been out for a while. Liverpool were on, on the last legs. This season, Klopp's rotated so much more and Liverpool are playing more attacking football at this stage of the season because they feel as though they can and because they feel as though it's their way home. And you can't argue with it being their way home when they go to Porto in the first leg of a Champions League game and absolutely cut them to ribbons and win 5-0. So winning 5-0 is the pragmatic thing to do. And I think that that's something which we, we because there's, there is this desire to, 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 to refer to, we never refer, like after minute Pep Guardiola's football is the most pragmatic in the country. True. that's the reality of the situation he's doing what he needs to to make sure he wins games of football and wins them well he is showing an unbelievable level of pragmatism week in week out he's also showing that pragmatism though in the in the idea of a football team whose target is to get 100 points um, which so the only way you get 100 points is by playing football the way in which he plays it you cannot cannot dog your way to 100 points and this is the sort of the core question for everyone who's chasing Manchester City: is what's your way of not getting a hundred points, say, but what's your way of getting ninety points, and will it work? Mm. And I think that that's where, in the current climate with the current setup, where there, there will remain questions around all of Pochettino, Mourinho, and Klopp, and anyone else that you care to mention, as to what's your ninety-point solution. Because mm. while I think that Man City may be poorer next season, I think that you'll still need to be able to get the ninety points to beat them. Whilst they may lose some of their intensity and some of the focus for domestic football, you'll still be able to do that. And I don't know if the attritional football that Manchester United seek to play will be, they'll pass the way to 90 points any more or less than, say, Liverpool's more expansive brew or Tottenham's sort of combination of the two, which is quite physically intense. I don't know what the answer is for any of those sides. Mm. And that, a lot of that's going to come down to the transfer market in the summer. Because it may well be a situation where you know whoever gets the transfer right will be the side that will come closest to genuinely being able to be, put some pressure on.
1: Mm. Now, I, I didn't, I didn't sort of prepare for this. Tell, if, you, if it's not a question you, you can, you're you able to answer, then don't bother. But before I spoke to you, I spoke to Mark Webster about West Ham and yeah. the the uh, the the lack of relationship the fans have with the club and the anger and I read it, aimed at the owners, which Liverpool. I've sort of been there, done that in a very in a very dramatic sense, all the way to high court. Um, is there, you know, reflecting on that time when you 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 began to see the sort of spirit of Shankly take shape and get momentum that began to help with that from a fan point of view? What what could you say to sort of West Ham fans about how because they've had they've had protests, I think. Planned and then cancelled. Planned and then cancelled. Fans are cheering people. Fans are booing people from on the pitch. It's sort of there seems to be a very confused state. Which I, I mean, I've, I remembered it vividly. Where it's that idea of you kind of go, can we talk about football, not not leverage
4: buyouts and the like? I think the first thing we need to do is get a sense of togetherness. There to was. But as a shanker, it was always difficult because there were some people who were comfortable protesting and there were some people who weren't. Mm. But what there wasn't was a general feeling that all was right at Liverpool Football Club and what there wasn't was opposing factions. There were people who were more, I would say, more lackadaisical about it, more complacent. Mm. But what they weren't doing was actually was trying to sort of present the view that, no, oh, actually everything is absolutely all right, and trying to present that, that view aggressively. So I think that the best thing that can happen is that West Ham supporters... Insofar as anyone is going to speak, they all need to speak with one voice. And if there's people for whom protest is not for them, that's absolutely fine. Mm. But there needs to be an understanding of what it is that they look to speak together and collectively. I think it's a situation which is, you know, it's, I'm not going to say it's it's stable door and the horse is bolted because that isn't the case. But I do think that the the move and the fact that there was a there was a collective complacency around the move as though West Ham were going to kick on and become some sort of staggering worldwide football and force when quite frankly there was, there was literally no evidence to support that has um, led to to this situation but I'm saying this from my position where there might be West Ham supporters listening to this saying actually loads of us thought that at the time and they couldn't get that message out and I think that the first thing to do is to try to get that message out to try to get a message that reflects what mainstream West Ham support and opinion is Uh, which is that there's got to be change and I think that there's a fair few clubs up and down the country at the minute um, who, in the Premier League who I think really do need to have a look at their boards so I think sack the board has actually become something that we say say less in football than we used to I used to hear sack the board all the time when I was growing up
3: Mm.
4: Um, and instead we've become focused more on ownerships whereas I actually think that given the amount of money that television now provides the vast majority of football clubs should remain and should be able to remain solvent. Uh, money should not be getting taken out of football clubs, but that's something for the F-A to deal with sort of in general and en masse. But I think that the vast majority of football clubs are solvent uh, to, a, to, to a degree that they can function and function well. And they can even be badly run while still be functioning and functioning well where the bottom line is concerned. And mm-hmm. think football clubs should be actually asking the questions of people who run them. And I think that in general what we shouldn't do is talk about a forelock of these people and presume because there are significant sums of money involved, these people will always be right. The first thing to say about that is, one, they can't all be. But also, two, we, we think that these are a significant sums of money because to us in our, our everyday lives, they are. But let's let's really call this what it is. The vast majority of football clubs have a term yeah. over less than around an Sainsbury's. An and we shouldn't be in order of this. And we should be able to say, we should put children in my football club properly. And finding ways and messages to be able to put that out on a regular basis counts is is important. What we can't do is, is cry wolf. I don't think you're run my football club properly. doesn't mean the same thing as I profoundly disagree with that transfer, sir. Yeah, I think yeah. what it means is the idea that, you know, I profoundly disagree with these last 15 transfers is something really rather different to, you know, I'd rather buy a goalkeeper than buy a centre-forward. But I do think as much as possible, speaking with one voice, having a clarity around that voice, and, you know, being able to say, these are the people who, you know, we want to let these people speak on behalf of us. And the people football clubs is important, and the last thing to the thing not to do is I think it's fine to not be interested in this. I think it's fine to not to not want this stuff to be at the centre of your supporting life. It's exhausting if it is the centre of your supporting life. It really is quite a draining thing. And I take my hat off to those who who are involved in supporters' trusts and the like up and down the country. But I think that the last thing that we should all be doing is presuming that the men who have made the money somewhere else in business know what's best. We presume at times that people who've made money in business can therefore run any business and there's an enormous body of, or run anything full stop can run a country in in the case of the United States. And there's an enormous body of evidence that suggests that that just simply isn't the case. And running a football club, which is a cultural institution and which is the heart of the culture, of a city, of a location, which is at the heart of a worldwide diaspora of people, which is not a conventional business, is not the same as running anything else that you care to mention, where what dominates is bottom line. And I think that the sooner we understand that we make our football administrators understand that we demand they be better, we demand that they do more, the better we'll be. And just because the fellow who's who's made some money in in one business supports your football team, that does not mean he is the right man to run that club.
1: No, no, no. It, it, it kind of feels like, culturally speaking, I mean, we 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 could move to kind of like the opposite end of what was this hundred pound a week cap and breaking that that, that there should be almost like a cap on what money can be taken out. It's like you look at football clubs now and you feel like in an age of social enterprises, football clubs are the ultimate social enterprise in every town and city across Britain in many senses.
4: Very much so, Steve. and I think that that's the way in which they should be seen. They should be they should be being run as social enterprises. Uh, and I think that, I mean, a lot of this strikes back at the fit and proper test and a lot of it strikes back at the idea of what we actually want our football clubs to be. I think football clubs should be should be perfectly entitled to make money. I haven't got a problem with football clubs making money. I've talked to past and will write extensively. I'm p- perfectly happy with the vast majority of moves around kick-off times for television purposes. The reason why is because I think that that should be going back into things like, for instance, facilities and also through a reduction of ticket prices and make Peter pay for Paul a little bit. But... As it is, if football supporters aren't careful, most of us up and down the country end up with the thin end of both wedges.
1: Well, look, thank you for giving you the time on the whistleblowers, mate. Uh, I wish that uh, it had been a better result for you at the weekend. <laughs> you got all these football matches it at Indeed. All right, well, that's been the whistleblowers.
0: This is a Playback Media production. To listen to all our football podcasts, visit playbackmedia.co.uk. The Whistleblowers is back for the season by Labbrooks. If you're a large organisation involved in managing, purchasing, or making decisions on software licences, you need Livingston. Livingston provides the technology and a large team of experts to help you understand what software is installed on your network, who is using it, and whether you purchase the right number of software licences to legally use it. This information can help you make smart business decisions When it comes to renegotiating software licensing agreements with large software publishers like Microsoft, Oracle, IBM and others, and when budgeting for software spend. To reduce the cost and risk of managing your software licenses, speak to Livingston today about our managed services. Over 50 multinationals across the world trust Livingston to manage their software licenses. Visit livingston-tech.com for more information. What's your thoughts on Fulham? Chances are you don't think about them too much, but nice away day by the river, used to have a Michael Jackson statue, and once did quite well under Roy Hodgson.